Right, we're at First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. I'll lift up the term, and we'll, what I'll kind of put out before you is maybe a question that we want to begin to investigate, but we won't be able to pick up on it as much until next, next Friday in our Q&A. What would this gift really be designed to do? What is the general and specific and poignant purpose of a gift like this, the gift of languages? Look at it in verse 10. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discerning of spirits, which we also enjoyed and benefit, benefited from. And to another, diverse or different kinds of tongues, different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. So this is the way Paul concludes a, uh, a set of triads, three sets of triads, nine gifts in this package here. And he closes out with the gift of languages. After talking about the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, all of these qualities that are so essential to, um, to the healing of the body of Christ, the direction and edification of the body of Christ. And now he kind of lands the plane on an area that he really intends on taking the Corinthians into deep waters on in chapter, uh, chapter 14, as you may know. So, um, what what does this mean? So in the opening of our consideration under point number one, the meaning of tongues. Here, the Greek term is glossos, from which we get the English word gloss, to gloss. And it literally means languages, not a very difficult term. There's no way to transliterate that to gloss. Glossos means languages. But if you notice what is said in the verse, this is the way Paul puts together this sort of clause. He says, uh, and to another, this is the second part of verse 10, to another, heteros, to someone else, different, diverse kinds of tongues. Diverse kinds of tongues. The word there, diverse, is different. The word kinds there actually is the idea of species, is literally the Greek term genus, from which we get the idea of a species or a genus, G-E-N-O-S. That's why the translators have the word in our Bible, kinds, kinds. So what he's hinting at is the fact that languages come in different kinds. They come in different species. So the general idea of gloss, our language, means to have a mode of communication that is common to a people group. Languages are modes of communication that are common to people groups by which they interact on a linguistic level. But what Paul is also identifying is that it's not just one language or one genre or one dialectos that's the term in Acts 2. We'll get to that next week. What Paul is saying is this particular gift that, he's, that the Spirit of God gives us comes in different species, in different, uh, what he might call in the language, in, in different, in different um, expressions or different, actually the term would be translated another way, in different um, in different kinds, like 
when we read in Matthew chapter 7 about the kingdom of God being a dragnet, this is Mark 7, but Matthew 13, and it brings in fish, it uses the same term, genos, G-E-N-O-S, and it brought in fish of different kinds. So it's one general category, but each in that group of fish, there are different kinds of fishes. So you don't have the same kind of fish. You, you have different kinds of fish. Notice what it says, of every what? Kind. So what that tells us to be careful about is that in terms of the gift of languages, the gift of languages is not going to be one kind. It's not going to be a kind that if you could hear it and it has a similar expression or dialectos, then it would be the same everywhere on the planet. It's like the languages that we speak generally. Like some of us speak English, maybe a little uh, Espanol. Some of us might speak Portuguese or Slavic or whatever, German. Those are all different kinds of languages. They're all languages. They're different kinds of languages. Now I'm pressing that home because that's literally what he's saying in our text. If you look at the text again, he says, to another, diverse kinds of tongues. And they're in the plural form. Different kinds of tongues. So point A in your outline would say a specific genus or kind or what? Sort. And that's the, that's the idea. Again, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. This will start making sense in a moment because he does the same thing here. He says in verse 28, and God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, and after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, and what? Diversities of tongues. So again, what we want to do is grapple with the reality that whatever this is in its expressional form, there are different species, different sorts of them. Now, this ought to, again, allow you to settle down in this sense that the tongues of men, the tongues of human beings are different in their categories according to our ethnic groups, according to our national status, or according to where we live. There are thousands of dialectics around the world, and Paul is saying this particular gift falls within that category. This allows us to think through certain kinds of implications, and we will uh, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So under point number one, the meaning of tongues, or the meaning of tongues is the uh, issue of languages, a specific genus, or kind, or sort. Sub point B, languages of what? Languages of men. I want to press that home. They are languages of men. Now, I'm, I'm using what is called an exclusionary concept here. They are languages of men, therefore they are not languages of something else. I'm doing that on purpose for right now. I'm saying they are languages of men, therefore they are not languages of some other kind. And that's why you have also in your outline under point number two, nations. You guys see nations? That's the Greek term ethnos, okay? Um, that's also translated kinds or sorts. Um, again, when we look uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, that gives us a kind of insight to what we're talking about. I'll get back to Acts 2, 4 in a moment, but look at Acts 2, 11. Notice what it says. Cretes, Arabians, 
we do hear them speak in our glossos, the wonderful works of God. You guys see that? So at least in verse 11, though we know there are 17 nations that were there, in verse 11, what they said is, we're hearing them speak in these different genesis of languages, in these different sorts, in these different kinds of languages. Each, <clears throat> each, each representative that came to Pentecost on that day heard a group of uh, Jews who were of one uh, dialectos, and that is the Galilean Hebrew or the Galilean Aramaic. That's the way they kind of combine that language together. This one ethnos was speaking in the dialect of 17 other ethnoses, and they were also speaking the ethnoses of men, languages of men. It's really important for you to know that. So our verse here affirms that. Now, sub point C, to get back into really what's going on here, the meaning of glossa lalean. This, this is a specific genus. This is a kind. This is a sort. But these are languages of men, as we just asserted right there. But they are supernaturally what? Acquired. Supernaturally acquired. Now we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4. This is just stating the obvious, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to what? Speak with other tongues. Now, that construction is laying out exactly what we are getting from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This group of 120 people who are of the same ethnos, of the same dialectos, are now serving 17 different nations by speaking in their species of dialectos, their species of language, which is a miracle. We know it's a miracle because it's visible, it's dynamic, it breaks the rule of the rigor of having to learn each of these categories of languages through the process of didactics and education. This is something that's happening spontaneously, it is dynamic, and it's affirmed in the subject-object relationship between the people that are uttering and the people that are hearing. Does that make some sense? So all in this one event, several things are occurring. We can cap it off this way. The heavens have opened up. The third person has come down. He's the promise. 120 have been waiting for him. They are now all endowed with the third person. There is a visible manifestation of the endowment, a one-time event of the third person showing up in the final expression or what we would call the symbolic expression of tongues of fire on their head. This is a one-time event. This here is what we will call in uh, grammar a, uh, a apex ligamenon, meaning a once for all event. It does not repeat itself. You never ever see again the Spirit of God coming upon their heads and tongues of fire sitting on them. This never happens. Okay, so it's important to understand that that event was spectacular, it was punctiliar, it was one time, the coming down of the Spirit. And the essence of that meaning is that the Spirit doesn't come down and then go back up and then come back down and go back up and come back down. He's here. Now, when we work through the New Testament, we will see that as he works in the Old Testament, the Spirit will manifest. In fact, that's what we're learning in 1 Corinthians 12, right? The manifestation of the Spirit. 
He will manifest repeatedly, but he won't come down repeatedly. So let's get our theology right. Jesus goes up. After 40 days, the Holy Ghost comes down. The Holy Ghost has been with us for 2,000 years. We know that because we still have the manifestation of the Spirit among us qualitatively in different gifts that are manifested. Now we're talking about, you know, the, the eighth out of the ninth gift, and that happens to be the gift of uh, languages a very remarkable thing. And if you are in your outline, it says no human what? Training. Do you guys see that under point number one? Do you guys see that? Yes. All right. So what I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do right now, just for time's sake, because we won't be here Friday, is I want you to see what you don't obviously often see when it comes to this particular phenomena. No one is trained in speaking in languages when it's really God authentically doing it. I'm just letting you know, okay? You don't, you don't coax somebody into, we do this with human languages, we help our babies speak, et cetera, et cetera. And on this occasion, 120 people were endowed and immediately they were gifted to communicate. And literally, going back to verse four, just to give you the record on it, because I want you to see it, Acts 2, verse 4, notice what it says. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, right. Uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There was an equal distribution of the Spirit upon their life. That's a metaphor. God's everywhere present. So the idea of filling is anthropomorphical. You guys know that, right? Meaning, as um, Solomon put it, you know, the heavens of heavens cannot contain God, much less this temple I built much less one human being. So when we're talking about filling, when we're talking about location, or when we're talking about quantity, we are using anthropomorphic terminology describing what is infinite in nature. God is infinite. God is everywhere. He can't be contained. And yet the idea of filling is not about God's immensity. It's about our limitedness. Did that make some sense? Right, so I just wanted to do some exegesis here to help us appreciate what's going on. So whenever God talks about filling us, he's talking about filling thimbles, okay? He's talking about filling little bitty vessels, glasses, okay? Cups, if you will. And in fact, the metaphor of the cup is a prominent one, right? You know, my cup runs over, right? And, and it's called the cup of blessing, which we bless. And what a joy it is for you and I to be a cup in the hand of the Lord into which he pours into that it may be poured out upon other people. That's the metaphor here. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to what? Right, that term, Greek term, lalan. So when you hear me use, I'm combining the terms when I use Greek grammar. When I go glossa, lalan, I am talking about tongues, speaking in tongues. Glossa lalane means to speak in tongues, speak in languages, all right? Glossa lalane. Lalane means to speak, okay? Laleos means to speak. Glossa in languages. Glossa lalane. You will hear that repeated when we get into the book of 1 Corinthians 14. And they began to speak with other tongues. It's in the plural. We don't have a problem with that because there's seven nations, 17 nations that have their own dialectos. So it's going to be in plural languages, is it not? 
Right. Now, this is going to be important when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, because remember what Paul said to the Corinthians as he was admonishing them. He says, I speak with more tongues than you all. What was he meaning? That means he had many dialectoses, many genres of languages that he could speak to different people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different ethnoses. Immediately, he was inspired to do that. So here, when Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians 14, I speak with more tongues than you all, he wasn't speaking in terms of uh, how much he speaks in tongues, which is sometimes the argument. He, you know, he speaks in tongues in the morning, in the evening, at night. No, that's not what he meant. What he meant was he had more languages than many of them. He could speak to different people at different times and different cultures in their own language, the wonderful works of God. Does that make some sense? This would also mean that if you and I were predisposed to the blessing of this gift, it does not preclude you and I um, being given that gift and therefore only speaking in one language. If God wanted you to, you could speak in three languages or four languages or five languages, whatever would be necessary for what this gift is really designed to do. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But just capture with me in your head, you being given the gift of languages. And then also say to yourself, well, how many languages are you gonna give me, God? And then put a number on it for yourself. Does that make some sense? follow what I'm saying because you are not being given a gift for you every one of the gift is for the profit of others so I just want you to kind of really wear this concept right now before you set it down and, and just take like a theological position on it which a lot of people do wear the gift embrace the gift ask the question how many gifts, how many languages, how many dialectos, how many species, how many sorts would you give me? As many is as needed for you to be able to reach as many people in different languages that you need to. If it's one, one. If it's 10, 10. Does that make sense? Can God do that? Of course he can. That would speak to why would he? Because that's kind of the question I'm raising up. Why would God give us the gift of languages, which breaks the normal pattern of the regiment of learning the dialect, breaking it down into its syntactical component parts and having to relearn a new dialect, uh, which can take years to do. Uh, why would God speed up that process? Why would he bypass that process? Why would he supernaturally endow a person with the mental capacity and therefore also the physical ability or what we call a land, the capacity to speak in other languages? Why would he do that, right? Very good question. You should already know it, but I'm putting it to you because God is a gracious God, is he not? He's a gracious God and, and this gift especially in the early church, um, this in the early church meant a lot. So under point number one, subpoint C, uh, supernaturally acquired. One more time, Acts chapter two, four, I want to say more, one more thing that I had said before about um, the way the Spirit of God did this. Look at what it says again. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them what? utterance okay what I don't want you to be 
uh, oblivious to is that last construction, that last clause, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So now, the Spirit gave a gift. That gift is languages, glossal of land, but the Spirit now is giving them the capacity to express it. Utterance is expression. Did that make some sense? Now, I want to talk about that briefly because I talked about this before. And they all spake in other tongues or other languages, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them what? Utterance, utterance, the ability to do it. Lalean heteros glossos. Acts chapter 26, verse 25. Here's a good um, example of the idea of utterance, and I'm going to explain it to you briefly. We'll unpack it later. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a ruler in the church. Um, this is uh, Festus speaking, and he said unto him, uh, let me start back at, let's say, verse 22. Let's get into the dialogue. There's a reason I want to uh, come here. Having therefore obtained help of God, this is Paul speaking, I continue unto this day witnessing, witnessing, doing what? Preaching the gospel, right? Both to small and great, saying none other things than that which the prophets Moses did say should come. What is Paul doing? Paul is rehearsing before Festus, the ruler, how God called him on the Damascus road, humbled him and revealed himself to Paul in the person of Christ and commissioned Paul right there to do what? Go forth and preach the gospel. You guys keeping up with me right quick? I want you to see what he's saying. Listen to what he says. So up to this point, Festus, I have been witnessing both to small and great, to the common person and to rulers. He really had saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Now, what is he doing now? He's saying that the content of his proclamation was the Old Testament prophecy concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's letting the ruler know that what he was doing by way of witnessing was really simply saying, this is what the scriptures say. Because again, he, we don't have the New Testament yet. All we have is Moses and the prophets. Y'all keeping up with me? So a true witness is really bearing record to who God is and what God is doing through God's word. That's the first thing I want you to capture. Now notice what he says in verse three, that Christ should suffer. What are we talking about now? The gospel, Christ's death on the cross, the doctrine of propitiation, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. What are we talking about now? The triumph of Christ's propitiation, his resurrection from the dead, the fact that the Old Testament said that he would suffer and die and rise again, and that he did rise again. That is the capstone of the gospel. What Paul is saying to Festus is this. You're hearing this this euangelion going around in the regions of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what is he hearing that Jesus has what? Risen from the dead. Now don't forget that because that is the message. The resurrection of Christ from the dead. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we have no gospel. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul is, 
engaging in the most absurd, if you will, fantasy about meeting Jesus on the Damascus road and a light knocking him down and saying, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the gold, right? He said he met, he says he met Christ because he did. He met the what? Risen Lord, the one that ascended and is coming to Paul now in the glory of his divine and human nature. Notice what he says, and showed light and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. That's what Paul is doing. He was commanded to. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice. In other words, Festus interrupted Paul as Paul was witnessing to him of what was witnessed to Paul for which Paul became a witness himself. Because remember, others were witnessing to Paul what Paul ultimately began to witness. Paul heard others talking about the resurrection of Christ. And Paul resisted the others until the one who himself is the resurrection stopped Paul and turned him into a convert. Paul, you are beside yourself. That is that Greek term I told you about, thalmazo. He's mad. He's outside of himself. Much learning doth make you what? There it is. Mad. Insane. Literally standing outside of yourself. Now, this is a ruler hearing Paul talking about the resurrection from the dead. And he's struggling with that. This is what you and I were talking about on last Friday when you and I were dealing with the doctrine of discernment, weren't we? And I had you guys to go with me to John's gospel and watch Peter and uh, John go into the tomb and analyze the evidence. Do you guys remember that? And how that John got it, but Peter didn't get it quite quickly. Peter took it apart, but he couldn't do what? Put it together again. He couldn't composite it to draw a conclusion. But John did, didn't he? Right. So right now, guess what Festus is trying to do with the preaching of Paul? He's trying to take it apart and put it back together again, but it's not making sense. So he says, Paul, stop. You're crazy. You're crazy. You're mad. This was a big deal in the first century, you guys. The resurrection from the dead was a big deal. Much learning doth make you mad. And what, what, is, what is Festus doing with Paul? He's attributing Paul's zeal to learning, to education, like all Paul was doing was reading a bunch of books or something. No, Paul has had an encounter with the true and the living God. The Savior of the world has met Paul at his crisis and gave him an assignment and as he's going to say in another portion of the scriptures, and I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So Paul is now pressing through opposition that's coming at him, telling him he's crazy from leadership. That's exactly what Christ said he would do. I will send you before kings and before rulers, and you will have to suffer many things for my name's sake. Now watch how Paul responds. Verse 25. <clears throat> Much learning does make you, Paul, you're crazy. But he said to Festus, I am not crazy. I love that. Right. Most noble Festus. He's so sharp that he actually maintains decorum with Festus. So I want you to understand, I want you to see what's going on with the word utterance here. Because this, this will evade you and me if we, if we misrepresent the gift of languages by what you see often in our churches. 
So I just want to talk about utterance. Notice what he says. He says, I am not mad, most noble Festus. Doesn't it sound like Paul is very clear-headed? That he's poignant? That he's contained in his reasoning? That he's articulate and clear? Doesn't it sound like that? It sounds like he is established in who he is. And even though he's getting pushed back from the ruler, he's not discombobulated. He's not offended. He's not extreme. He's not edgy. He has a great level of what? Comportment. Does that make some sense? I'm taking you somewhere here. This is where I want you to go with the term utterance. Notice what he says. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but do what? Speak forth. Do you see that word speak forth? That's our word utter. Utter. It means to speak forth. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. So now we're apprehended by the manner and the content and the expression of Paul's words, are we not? What we know is that Paul is not sounding like a fool. He's not sounding irrational. He's not sounding like he's intending on confusing someone. He doesn't sound like he is possessed of a python spirit. Am I making some sense? Now, this is the idea of utterance. It's a long Greek term. It really doesn't matter how to express it, but the term literally means to speak with dignity and to speak with clarity. To speak with dignity and to speak with clarity. The purpose of utterance is that people might know distinctly what you are saying. So when the Spirit gave them utterance, they spake with great clarity and great dignity and with great soberness and with great preciseness in all of the different languages that they heard in Acts chapter 2 so that they all said, we do hear them all speak the wonderful works of God in our own language. So when I, when I go to different countries, whether it's France or Italy, Mexico, uh, and I try to speak uh, a little Espanol. My my Latina friends laugh at me. Uh, they say, "Boy, you got work to do, right?" Because I don't speak eloquently. Fortunately, some of them can understand my ghetto Spanish, right? But it's not eloquent. The gift of languages, when it's uttered, is eloquent. So that also becomes the remarkable nature of it. See, because if you did learn, let's say, Persian, you know, um, uh, that would be Farsi, uh, the Farsi language, or you did learn Hebrew, or you did learn Aramaic, or some other language, and you were really brutish at it, you were really rough, it was really hard to determine what you were saying. And we go, that was a gift from God. Wouldn't we say, okay, God, if you give me that gift, Will you not at least help me say the thing with a level of sufficiency and competency so they can know what I'm saying, so they can know this is from you? Did that make some sense? I wanted to drill, drill that home because if we really understand what the gift is about, the gift is about successfully communicating to other people in their own language a message that they cannot refuse. If I communicate to you in your language, you're going to be impressed that I'm able to do it. 
if I do it with dignity, with eloquence, with clarity, with soberness, you're going to be extra impressed with how I say it. This is what I'm getting at with the gift. I'm saying God is not just kind of pulling rabbits out of the hat. He's doing something by way of persuading people from all these different ethnoses because he loves them. Does that make some sense? And he wants them to know, I'm knocking on your door and please know I got the address right. This is not the wrong door. You are the person I want to talk to. And so I'm speaking to you in your own language and there is no reason for you not to know what I'm saying. Does that make some sense? Very good, very good. So with that labor, let's go back to point number two and work our way through a little bit. So very good. We'll, we'll drill down into some of the reason why that's important as well. I will say that as we're passing to point number two, I should go there. Uh, do note that glossos, glossos, um, languages is a term that's translated frequently in the New Testament as nations, nations. So when you hear Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, you know, um, all power and authority has been given unto me in heaven uh, and in earth. Therefore, go ye into all what? The world, preach the gospel to every what? Nation, kindred, tribe, and what? Tongue. This matter of languages is important in that first century. It's massively important. It's massively important. Uh, verse, verse, eight, verse 18, let me see. Um, verse 20, verse 20 then. Verse 19, okay, so to the end. Uh, all right, so that one, that would be another that would be another verse rendering that they go into every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 is, is given in the book of the apocalypse so many times. I'm only going to quote one or two just to kind of set the context or give a frame for why glossolalia is so important, particularly in that first century. And they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every what? Kindred and what? Tongue and what? People and what? Nations. Now notice what's being stated there. Kindred, tongue, people, and nations. Tongues, languages, nations. Nations and languages are important to God. Nations and languages are important to God. If you look at this verse, you know what this verse is saying? That Acts chapter 2 has triumphed. We're in Revelation 5, 9. They're already in heaven. They're celebrating having been redeemed by one man and one man's blood. All these different ethnic groups are now in glory, are they not? They're in glory celebrating their redemption which we saw initially take off in Acts chapter 2, which means they're in heaven because somebody spoke the gospel in their language and brought Christ to them, of which they have received, and now they're celebrating along with other ethnic groups a God who has reached them with the message of redemption. That should be important to you um, as it was to them because here we are, there's a handful of us, but I could probably say, let me see here. Uh, I could say among us, there are 
um, four languages, maybe five. Uh, Tongan, right, Leah? Uh, Tongan and English, Any? do you, anything else? Tongan and English, too. Uh, who, who else? I know my sister, my sister and brother, Latina. Several of you guys speak, how many of you guys speak Espanol? All right, so, so Tongan, Espanol, Espanol too? Uh, huh? Sign language, excellent, there you go, that's beautiful. So that's, that's, so we got English, Tongan, Espanol, anybody among us with any other language, any other language in the house? What, Filipino, uh, it's not, what is it? Tagalog, that's right, so one, two, three, is that four? That's four, anybody else? Oh, my brother, Ethiopian, what's the language? Uh, yeah, is that the only one? Is there another, another dialect? Yeah, do you speak them? Okay, so that's four. Do, do we have five and a half? My sister back there, which one? Cantonese, that's my son. My son-in-law speaks Cantonese too. So that's already six, six among us, right? So we got Cantonese, we got our Ethiopian brother, that's two. We got uh, Tongan language, that's three. We got Espanol, that's four. We got English, five. Did we miss one? Sign language. Is there anybody else? Anybody else speaking anything and don't want to tell us? Okay, good. All right. Great. That's five. I'm good. That's five. We'll probably get it. We'll probably get some emails right now from about seven people that are speaking Russian. Pastor, I speak Russian. I speak. See, we did. They already got them up there. They'll let us. They'll let us know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You and I are in the post effect of the Acts 2 account. The gospel has already gone. People have already been converted. And we're all now speaking the same heavenly language, which is the message of redemption. All right, we'll get a chance to talk about that too when we go deeper. What a, what a beautiful reality. So let's go into point number two uh, briefly. Under point number two, the demonstration of tongues. This is what we're looking at in Acts chapter two. And I just want to say three things about it there. Expressed by the Romans expressed by the Romans. What do I mean by that? What was taking place in Acts chapter 2 also took place in Acts chapter 10 with, um, with Cornelius and the Italian band, and they were Roman. So look at Acts chapter uh, 10, verse 46, right quick. We'll just look at it. We won't exegete it. I just want to bring it home. Acts chapter 10, verse 46 so, um, so go back to verse 44 for me and we'll walk it up. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. So Peter is explaining the gospel and the spirit of God now is coming upon the Italian band. These are Romans, okay? And notice what it says in verse 45. And they of the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, they are observing. The Jewish people here, these Jewish men, are not receiving the Spirit of God. They're watching the Spirit of God manifest itself upon the Gentiles. Did that make some sense? That's a really strategic point, not to be developed now, but the purpose for which that manifestation upon the Gentiles was given, as we're going to see in our outline, is it was a sign that the gospel would penetrate into the culture of the Gentiles. Did that make some sense? Right, it was a sign. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, and as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God, then 
answered Peter. What I love about this is I've told you guys to be able to look for this anytime. This is called a thalipsis. Uh, not a thalipsis. This is called an ellipsis in scripture. It's a, a, a device that states that an event has occurred, but something has been left out. What I told you is that you and I don't know what they said. We only know that they said it. We also know that those who heard it were impacted by it. The, the circumcision heard them and were impacted, were they not? And the Romans are speaking and they're not speaking in vain. Something happened and the circumcision heard it. And guess what they said? They have what we have. Okay, there now is a common unity between the Italian band and the circumcision who believe the gospel. And we have a common denominator, and that is the spirit of God, which has manifested himself in glossolalia. Got that? All right, so it's very good. So that's one expression. A second one is given in Acts 19, verse 6, by the Asians. I call them the Asians because now... Paul is in Asia Minor, and this is pushing up to the area where most of your New Testament letters are given, okay? Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, all of those are Asia Minor areas. Does that make some sense? Right, that's, that's where Paul is now. So he's pushing past the boundaries of Jerusalem. He's passing the boundaries of Judea. We'll look at Acts 8 here in a moment. That's Samaria. And now he's out in the uttermost regions because the gospel was meant to go as far as it could. Did that make some sense? So he's out there with the brothers that are way over there in the Greek islands, okay? That's them. Now listen, and when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they what? Spake with tongues. There it is, glossolalean, and they what? prophesied now we've gotten into a component here called the the content of their proclamation because they speak with languages and in those languages they prophesied that's going to be paul's argument in first corinthians 14 that the gift of languages inclusive in it is revelation of god's will that's what prophecy is about. We'll deal with that when we get there. But here, I just want you to mark in your outline that the gospel is spreading. Subpoint C, expressed, and then I raise a question mark, by the who? Samaritans. Is that in your outline? Yeah. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Acts 8, 5. In Acts 8, 5, a beautifully gifted deacon is working. This happens to be Philip, as you guys know him. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and did what? Preach Christ unto them. That's what he's called to do. So even though he's a deacon, Acts chapter 6, he's also um, a preacher of the gospel. You guys know Philip was used mightily by God. The Ethiopians received the gospel initially through Philip. I know there's a great tradition around that in Ethiopia, Giannis. I know that because there's a deep, rich culture of Ethiopic scholarship that in the first three to four centuries, actually about five centuries, because the bishops, a lot of the bishops in uh, Ethiopia fought some serious battles around uh, doctrinal heresies that we had to win. The terms are technical, so I'm not going to get into them, but those, those uh, Ethiopic... Uh, uh, Ethiop uh, Ethiopian bishops were very solid in their understanding of the word of God and it helped keep us from certain heresies. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. The next verse I want you to see then is verse number 14. 
Notice what it says. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them who? Peter and John. So now a particular kind of mechanism is going to take place that I call descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, but it does have theological significance because remember, if you're reading Paul carefully, he says there is an order salutis, there is a taxonomy of giftedness in the church, and it begins with the apostles. He says the apostles first, prophets second, and then teachers third. You guys remember that? That is the hierarchy. Apostles first, prophets second, teachers third. So obviously Philip is preaching and God is using it. The Samaritans are jazzed. They've heard the gospel. But as of yet, there has not been the manifestation. So Peter and John uh, go up to see what's going on. Verse 15. Who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might what? Receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 16. For as yet he was fallen on none of them, only they were what? Baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They were baptized but there was not the affirmation of the manifestation of the Spirit for which Peter and John are now praying for that. This is an interesting set of mechanisms. And the reason why I say this is descriptive and not prescriptive, which is what I love, is in this account, Peter is praying. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is talking. So you don't have a law that you got you to gotta pray only for the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost falls when he wants to. He's sovereign, right? So it's not that you lay hands. It's not that you pray. You can pray. You can lay hands. But he's only coming when he wants to come. Did that make some sense? Like it's really important to know that because a lot of times we like to create formulas for him and then kind of, you know, constrict him to certain laws and methodologies. And the book of Acts actually shatters all that. The Spirit of God comes when he wants to come. There's one prerequisite to the Spirit of God coming in its manifestation, and that is the gospel has to be preached. That's all that has to be done. And he can show up when he wants to. This is why we share the gospel with our kids, because the Holy Ghost can show up when he wants to. Does that make some sense? The only thing we want to do is be faithful to spread that seed. If we sow the seed... Maybe someone else will water, and any time God wants to, he'll do what? Give the increase. So we don't know what happened with these people uh, requisite to what we're dealing with here. They could have easily had the gospel sown in the hearts, kind of the, the follow ground of their hearts tilled in, in preparation for Philip. But notice what it says, verse 17. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. All right, so the mechanism of laying on of hands is going on here. Verse 18, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them what? Right, and so many of us know what the proverb says, right? Why is there a reward in the hand of a fool for wisdom? For Simon's a fool. He was a preacher for hire. And all he wanted was power. And he was willing to pay for that. Right. And now notice what he said. I see that you guys are laying hands on people and a manifestation is taking place. I can make a ton of money doing that. Sound like the 21st century churches, doesn't it? Especially in Africa. I can tell you that right now. Boy, they knock a bunch of people down every week. Now, and when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered the money. But I just, I just argued with you that 
this is not a prescription, meaning the Holy Spirit can come when he wants to. You can bump people in the back of the head, the front of the head. You can kick them, knock them out, like some people say. Uh, and the Holy Ghost is only coming when he comes. Okay, you can get a headache in church and not necessarily get the Holy Ghost. So it's just important for you to know that, okay? What did you get tonight? I got a headache. Um, verse 19, verse 19, verse 19, verse 19. Saying, give me also this what? Right, and, and, and that's wrong. You don't want power, you want God. Now you say, well, God is power. Yeah, but power is not God. Right? There's a big difference between God and power. If you have God, you have power. But it does not mean that if you have power, you have God. Did that make some sense? You can have power and it can be demonic. You can have power, it can be fleshly. You can have power and it can be just simply psychobabble type techniques that can manipul manipulate people because you can speak well. So having power does not make you a servant of God, right? Remember, the devil told Jesus, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the power you need. So power is not the end game. God's the end game. But Simon wanted this power. Whomsoever I laid my hands on, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Um, bad application, Simon, bad application. But you and I must say, the Spirit of God is doing exactly what Jesus said. Start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You guys got that? So it's three things happening. Obedient believers are going. The Word of God is being proclaimed by those obedient believers. And the Holy Spirit is falling on those who hear the Word. That, that is your formula right there. No believers going, no word preached. No word preached, no spirit of God. Very, very important. So um, that's point number two in our outline for the, for the moment. Let me see here. Yep, I think that's it as far as I want to go. And finally, the third, third point, and we'll stop here. The gift of tongues is a what? All right, and it's important to magnify that up significantly uh, because this is where Paul is going to get into the... Um, catechizing and correcting or chastising our brothers and sisters at Corinth because of their misappropriation of the gift. Here's what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. We can look at it and then we'll observe two points and then we'll get ready to close. All I'm doing is giving you a general interpretation of the gift and its, uh, its limited application across the book of Acts for today. Um, I like this. Let me see. Let me start back at verse um, 20, and then I'll walk through 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding. So what is he doing? Admonishing them. He's correcting them. He says, be not children in understanding. That's paradoxical because uh, as a metaphor, a child is without understanding. So the goal is to be adults or mature understanding that's the whole goal right be not children in understanding how be it in malice be children that's a quality of children that that you and i would like to have uh the ability to not be as um inclined to enter into the mischievous um sort of uh pre-adult adult sort of uh malevolent uh characteristics that are much more complex and diabolical be children in that sense, don't don't be don't be given to complexity. But in understanding, be what? All right, be men, be mature. Literally, that's what that term means, to be mature. 
It's the, it's the contradistinction between a child and an adult, right? And, and, and just in case it's not coming home to you, um, you, you may have forgotten, but when you were really young, the one thing that was on your mind was being an adult. Y'all don't remember that now, do you? Yeah. But remember, I can't wait till I grow up. I can't wait till I grow up. I, if I grow up, then the world is mine. You remember that? That's just how we thought, right? <laughs> you know, it's like escaping from prison, right? This is, we were as naive as could be, weren't we? Yeah, but see, if we grow up, then we can, we can do whatever we want to. We can accomplish our goals. I can do anything when I grow up. Right. Verse 21. Almost done. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues, other tongues, and other lips will I speak unto this people. Who's speaking here? Paul. What is he speaking about? The language of the prophets. Who of, whom, of whom is he speaking? Isaiah. What is Isaiah talking about? The Babylonians. What is the Babylonian kingdom a hallmark by chaos and Babel. That is Genesis chapter 9 through 11, right? When the tongues were scattered, right? Because of the rebellion of men, right? Babylon is what he's talking about. And, and, and what, what Paul is saying is God judges people when he confounds their language. Because the confounding of language means the confounding of understanding. And the confounding of understanding means the confounding of relationships. And where relationships are confounded, we don't have unity. We don't have harmony. We don't have oneness. We don't have clarity. We don't have understanding. That's where we are in our world today in a lot of ways. Notice what it says. And the law is written of men of other tongues and with other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me saith the Lord. In other words, what is, it, what is Paul getting ready to build? He's getting ready to build an argument on people coming with a language that they can't understand. And them needing to be able to respond to a people coming to them with a language that they can't understand and go, what does this mean? That's what they should be doing, right? Whoa, God is dealing with us by an authority that's coming to us in a foreign language, which we can't even understand, and they're dominating us. It's very important for us to get, because Paul is getting ready to build an argument against uh, confounding this gift called languages. Yet for all that, will they not hear me? They will not hear me. So the Lord was speaking through the Babylonians, was he not? All right, look at what he says in verse 22. Wherefore, tongues are for a what? It's a sign, Simeon. And remember what we learned the other day, I'm done here for, for now. A sign is never the end in itself. A sign is never designed for you and I to terminate on the sign. The sign is always designed to point you somewhere else, to further your journey not for you to terminate right there. The stop sign is not saying stop permanently forever right here. It's saying stop for a moment, look both ways, proceed with caution, right? But your job is not to get stuck on the sign, it's to understand that the sign is sending you somewhere else. And that's gonna be the issue that we have to work through when we figure out how to understand the gift of languages. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, so then notice what he's saying here with this. 
we'll just milk this out. I do need to stop. That a believer should have a level of understanding and comprehension around the gift of languages as it serves to be a sign for something else so that they are not tripping and stumbling at the sign, but rather understanding where the sign is leading them so that they can enter into a more fullness of unity and fellowship at the level of edification because we already learned in the earlier verses of 1 Corinthians 14, the goal is edification. The goal is edification. And so he's going to say, it's not to them that believe, but to them that what? Believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which what? Believe. So the gift of signs is a breakthrough gift. In the first century, the goal of the gift of signs was to get to people who were not believers right away by speaking to them in their own language the wonderful works of God so that they didn't have such a long way to go to hear what God has done for them in the person of Christ so that they could immediately be grafted into the kingdom of God and then take that same gospel back to their own families where they were and preach the gospel to them. So it was a breakthrough gift to bring men and women into a space where they can know God and Christ as the first century church did. All right, you guys, this is it. 